Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Tuesday episode of the Fraudology podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. Well, if you're used to listening to Tuesday episodes of the Fraudology podcast, you are probably used to hearing me talk with an awesome fraud fighter within the space. That is something that I love to do. I love to highlight various people with different expertise and experiences all throughout online fraud, whether it's e-commerce or banking or fintech or marketplaces or wherever on the map they are. And that is something that I will continue to do next week. But this week, you are stuck with me due to just a series of events from an interview being rescheduled, which happens to me being out of town last week and just not able to schedule an interview around my schedule. I decided that this was a good opportunity to provide an episode that has been requested a lot in the last few months. And that is a follow-up or a 2022 version of a podcast episode that I recorded actually for my previous podcast way back in May of 2019 that I then re-released on Fraudology earlier this year and have been asked for updates for 2022. And that episode was called Merchants Are From Mars, Vendors Are From Venus. I thought it was pretty clever, but also very true where it does seem like in a lot of ways, people who work on the solution provider side, especially in sales and marketing, and those who work on the merchant or marketplace or fintech or banking side as practitioners, I often shorthand that just as merchants because I've been in the e-commerce space for so long. But when I say merchants, I mean practitioners, the front fighting leaders on the ground, so to speak, buyers for fraud technology gym providers. It's almost as if you guys are talking to a different a different language. And I understand why there are very different needs within your business and very different issues. And it's almost impossible for you to completely understand, you know, if you're on the practitioner side, it's difficult to understand why that solution provider salesperson might have called you four times this week, despite you never answering the phone. Or if you are on the solution provider side in sales or marketing, it might be really hard for you to understand why that merchant didn't pick up the phone four times because you have such a great product and you probably have a lot of pressure from up high and you have a job to do too. And I want to preface it all by saying that this is not meant to be vendor bashing at all. I do typically tend to kind of take the merchant's side a lot because that is the perspective that I've had the most in my, just within my career. And that's who I identify with the most. But it's not just going to be bashing. I want to provide some actionable tips and suggestions. I've been working with a handful of select solution providers in an advisory capacity over the last few years and have learned a lot more even about just the needs of a business, the different stages within a fraud technology startup or a fintech startup. The different And within those different stages are different needs for the business and different pressures. And I have just heard a lot, especially horror stories, but also good ones too from merchants. I'm so lucky that they confide in me and 
A few of them have even started to call me their voice, which I have laughed at more than once. But I do recognize that there's a lot that they can't say. And so I feel privileged and feel the weight of the responsibility of kind of being that spokesperson a little bit. So since recording the first version of this episode, and this will be a very different, I kind of see this as two separate episodes, but on similar topics. So I recommend if you didn't listen to the first one, go ahead and do that. It's not like I took the outline and just updated a few things. This is different, but similar focus. But since recording the first version, a lot has happened in the world as well as within our industry. The pandemic has changed a lot, not just again, in our world, but very much in our industry, including how vendors and merchants interact. There's higher volumes of sales as well as fraud in a lot of areas, but there seem to be less resources and, and less budget allocated to fraud prevention just as a whole. This doesn't this isn't specific to every company or every vertical, but as a whole. When I pulled merchants a month or two ago and asked them what their biggest stress at work was, it was that they we're expected to do more with less. And that doesn't relate well to needing to purchase a whole lot of solution solutions or SaaS services. But that doesn't mean that you all just need to pack up and not do your job. I, I really do believe that there is a way to sell and market effectively to merchants in a way that they will respond to and want to learn from. And that will translate into signed contracts. A big reason why I believe that is because I have worked with a handful of companies to help them do that. And I've seen the successes. I've seen them really become leaders in the space and companies that merchants are not only excited about, but they're telling each other about. And I think that that is in part because I have selected great companies to work with, great people to work with that are open to my suggestions that may not be in a sales book somewhere, but I know this audience pretty well and that they're just good people and merchants can see that as well. They have the right intentions, but also because like I said, I've been a merchant, I've worked with merchants and I hear a lot. When you hear enough horror stories or complaints, you start to realize, okay, that's not the way things should go. Why is that? Why are so many companies still doing that? So that's kind of where I'm coming from here. Other things that have changed since 2019, there's more VC money invested in fraud technology and fintech than ever before. I mean, at least up until the last few months, which has also caused some issues on the solution provider side, but also acquisitions and IPOs, et cetera. All of these are impacting the ecosystem and the industry in different ways. And I've also just received more feedback and observations from both sides. That's just over time that happens. There's definitely some themes and there will probably be a few themes that are similar to the episode three years ago and a few that are very different. So on the last episode, I kind of followed some survey results that I had asked for. So I had put out a survey to a group of seasoned sales professionals in fraud technology and then another group of merchant fraud leaders and really appreciated that feedback. This time around, I decided to kind of follow the sales process and talk about each one. I think that on this episode, I'm only going to get to pre-sales. I did write down I want to do two more episodes. One is about things that solution providers can do to help keep their clients. There is a lot of client dissatisfaction right now in the fraud technology space on the merchant marketplace and fintech side. Some of you hear that and hear opportunity because my competitors aren't doing well. Well, it could also be you. I mean, I have really found that merchants for various reasons, whether it's right or wrong, aren't often going to tell you 
when they have a lot of problems or they do tell you and you don't listen or take them seriously till they leave. But I've just heard way too many frustrations and crazy shenanigans and antics, honestly, on the solution provider side that are causing their customers to want to leave and look for alternatives, which is costly for them and takes a lot of time for them. So they don't want to do it either. But partially because it is such a pain for them to do, they often will tell their peers. So that is not a position you want to be in either. And that is the next section I will tackle another date. I also want to talk a little bit about merchant opinions or experiences when a fraud vendor or a payment vendor has an exit, whether that's an IPO or an acquisition or a merger. That is something that is not talked about. I mean, probably because most of the organizations that provide content are either, you know, solution providers yourselves. So you wouldn't think about, you know, writing this and you probably wouldn't know what merchant opinions are on those issues or their organizations that have members that are solution providers. And so they don't always feel comfortable being able to talk about both sides. I guess I'm in a unique position to be able to have these conversations. And, you know, like I said, it just seems like oftentimes a lot of you are speaking just different languages and I feel like I am able to translate them in a way. And I do understand the business objectives on both sides. And I want to say before we get started that I do very much value the majority of the solution providers in our space for the technology and the products and the innovation that you have brought to the space. Have there also been issues and problems and troublemakers and all of that? Yes, absolutely. But overall, it's a really good thing. When I started in fraud prevention, I've said this before, I'll say it again. There was really only one solution and it did not work for the unique business model that I had that I was working for at the time. And it really didn't help a lot of people. It was the best of its kind at the time because it was the only one. But, it, you know, then a couple others started and then in the last seven years, it's just exploded with so many options that it can be really overwhelming to merchants, especially when so many companies are using similar terms and similar tactics. So before I dive in, a couple of quick other notes, because I know I just had a few notes too, but these suggestions are going to be generalized. I can't give specifics for a lot of reasons, but mostly because there are so many different types of companies that listen to this podcast. I can't just talk about one or the other. So fortunately or unfortunately, I reserve specific strategy suggestions for the solution providers I work with as an advisor. Like I mentioned, when I say merchant, I often just mean practitioner, anyone who would be a buyer on the vendor side. So not just e-commerce, it's just Again, it's habit and not always something I can get out of. <laughs> I will probably bring out my mom voice at some points for both groups within our industry. Like I said, I do think it's fair to say that I'm a little more compassionate towards merchants and practitioners. But over the last several years, I've worked with and advised a handful of vendors in the space. So I do understand and can sometimes empathize with the challenges that people on the vendor side face too. And I'll be the first one to say when I think maybe a merchant took a misstep. I'll actually be talking about one of those a little bit later that I put in the margin to remind myself of a story to suggest. And if you are a practitioner and you are still listening to this episode, and I hope you are, I don't want this to just be all picking on vendors, but I do think that there are a couple of things that you guys can do as well to maybe communicate a little bit better or just maybe help yourselves help you a little bit. 
and I'll get into that more. So I do hope that you guys are listening as well. It really just seems like both vendors and merchants have similar goals and you guys want to work together. It's just, I don't know, it's talking past each other, just not not doing it in the right way. Not all of them, but a lot of them. Okay, so now that I got the lecturing points out of the way, I just really wanted to set up context. And I think I mentioned this, but in case I didn't, like this episode isn't meant to be comprehensive, but just to provide some perspective to help you evaluate your company's approach and initiatives. I would say probably the majority of these tips are for solution providers, especially because I kind of started out at the beginning of the life cycle with content marketing and some product marketing and then the first contact and then when there's a demo call or something like that we'll kind of work our way up kind of to the contract and then like a POC, et cetera, depending on, actually, I don't think I can include a POC this time, but we'll talk about that as well as other things on future episodes. But I get so many questions about this stuff. Even on LinkedIn recently, there was somebody who, how did it go? I should have pulled up the post, but it was like a couple of weeks ago. So I'm not exactly sure I'd be able to find it. it. Wasn't my post, but there was a industry leader in the fraud space on the practitioner side for a very large bank, if I remember correctly, who posted a few anecdotes that they wanted solution providers to know, especially people in sales. And a salesperson that I know well in fraud commented and said, I really hope I'm not like this. And I replied, that they weren't, that they've been in the industry for a long time and have really done the work to understand the industry and speak the language. And that because of that, a lot of merchants see them as a peer and not as a salesperson or someone to avoid. And there were a couple of comments after that from newer salespeople who said, well, if I haven't been in the industry for 10 or 15 years, how do I get started? So that was the other reason why I thought, okay, it's time to do this episode. <laughs> I'm going to start on the marketing side because I do think it's important. So really when it comes to content that your audience will read, and I really am talking to marketing people on the solution provider side at the moment, they want and need content that helps them do their job better. They don't want to spin or pitch. I know that sometimes that's something you have to do, but really there's so much content out there, but not as much on, and there's just, I have lists, like three or four pages of lists, bullet points basically, where I just keep a running list of the questions or the topics that I am asked on a fairly regular basis. I'll often put another check mark next to it if it's, you know, a lot of times. I try to keep track as much as possible. It's not, it doesn't live somewhere on technology. It's in my spiral notebooks where I do everything, where I write everything down. But it's probably three, four, five pages. I don't even know at this point, but of topics that I hear on a consistent basis that I know that merchants need, that I have never seen solution providers provide content about. That speaks to the problem that I mentioned earlier, right? Speaking two different languages, not understanding each other's perspective, not understanding the ins and outs and all of that and all the specifics and what they need. So that that is something to think about, though, is what are questions we're getting that we don't really have answers to or that we don't have a blog post about? That's a place to start from your customers or from your prospects, right? Or what are the pain points that they're continually bringing up? I know that merchants and practitioners often feel like they're telling their solution providers their pain points and their issues, but the organization within a solution provider is so segmented that oftentimes there's several layers between the person who's talking to the merchant and the person who's expected to write the blog post. So I would say try to do something to shorten that up so that there isn't so much of a distance. Your content needs to be accurate and truthful. I wish I didn't have to say that, but there are a handful of solution providers whose blogs I will not recommend 
or use myself as resources. If I'm looking something up really fast, I'm very grateful to have a pretty good long-term memory. Short-term, not as much. But So I usually don't have to look up too much. But there's been a couple of times where either I've looked something up quickly to just be refreshed on the rule and thought, oh, I'm some kind of a rule within payments or something like that. Oh, I'll just refresh really Oh, yep. This vendor wrote an article about it. It's first in my Google search because of SEO. I'll just click on that and see. And then I'm like, wait, that's not even close to what is said in the rules and regulations. And that's not something you can have an interpretation on. It's either one way or another. I've had other times where merchants have said, but these guys told me this. And I'm like, that's not accurate. That's very different. You could get fined if you did that or whatever the case may be on the specific example. So whether that's hiring someone internally who knows this stuff, whether it's, I know a couple of just excellent freelance content writers that really know their stuff and know who to ask. Sometimes I'm on that list. I guess that's why I know them. I think it's very important because All of this, whether it's creating content or when you're reaching out for sales, needs to be about creating trust. And I have heard merchants say this more times than I can count. If I can't trust you to fill in the blank, right, whether that respect my boundaries and not call me 18 times a day. Okay, 18 is excessive, but I have seen call logs of four or six times a day from some solution providers that call specific merchants four or six times the same day. Or maybe they're talking about whatever it is, right? Fill in the blank. And they're like, if I can't trust them to be accurate on their blog post or respect my boundaries or whatever that is, then how am I supposed to trust them with all of my company's transaction? How am I supposed to trust them with making decisions about our customers and you know their risk assessment and all of that? And I think it's a very valid point. So something to be aware of. Also, if you're talking about your product, also be accurate and truthful. There are unfortunately a few companies who have made the decision that although they have not innovated their product or innovated their product enough, they will start to use buzzwords that other providers use as well. And then that just gets confusing. And I have talked to more than one company, especially the ones that don't have someone full-time who understands fraud prevention and the industry and all of that who have believed and trusted the solution provider that they had the tool or the capabilities that they said they did. And it has led to broken contracts. It's led to a lot of frustration and wasted time. Whether that is companies who their business model is not to have a chargeback guarantee, but they say they do just to get in the RFI process or vice versa. Whether that's companies that claim to have some innovative technology and computing and data scientists and all all that goes into risk assessment, but may not actually have those capabilities abilities. Just be accurate and truthful. The truth always comes out. My grandmother taught me that and it is true in every part of life. And if you don't feel like you can be truthful in order to sell your product, maybe there needs to be some changes to your product. Just a thought. If there is a gate or a wall that requires an email or a phone number, oftentimes practitioners will think twice before downloading it or three times or four times. So you really realize what's your goal. Is your goal of this content to be thought leadership and provide value, especially if it's like a survey or a study or something, you know, that could really help them. If it is, then you don't need their emails. If it's all about getting leads, know that that feels 10 years ago. And I say this from a place of experience. I'm just not going to go into the details, but I do know 
a couple of them who have chosen not to put so much emphasis on leads for their marketing department, number of emails getting, and that is a good thing. I know other companies that that's all they care about. And then they end up with email addresses in their system that has no value to them. So now they're paying for emails to go out to companies or people aren't even in their prospect list. They, they don't even make sense for why they would be at marketing to them. And that's also a really good way to get your domain marked as spam. Because if people are getting your emails, your company emails that don't feel like it's fitting to, they're just going to unsubscribe or they're going to block or they're going to mark your domain as spam. So I'm all about quality over quantity in case you can't tell. But I have joked recently with a few merchants and they're like, oh, yeah, I wonder that, too. I said, I wonder how many signed contracts come out of blind marketing emails or actually, no, not even not marketing emails. I apologize. It's been cold emails, like cold call emails, basically, right out of the blue, just ah, pushing it often from an SDR, a sales development rep. I have yet to hear from any merchant. Like when I ask, how did you learn about them or how did you first meet them? I've yet to hear anyone say, oh, a sales rep reached out to me in the middle of the day who I'd never met before. And we just started talking. I really want someone to correct me on that. But just at least at the enterprise level, that's not anything I've heard of. It often has to do with repeatedly providing value in some way or hearing their peers talk about the value or getting a little bit curious because they heard you speak at an event. And wow, that's something I didn't know about before. Or wow, they provided me value on that. I wonder what else they'd know. That's usually how those conversations that lead somewhere will start. Or meeting at a conference, creating a relationship, that kind of thing. I am not discounting the importance of marketing emails. I'm sorry, just cutting off on the tangent about cold emails because I realized that I wasn't talking about the same thing. <laughs> but take time to talk to your customers, your current customers, and your internal subject matter experts to learn what information, what's what's happening right now. What are some themes? What are your clients asking you for? Because if your clients are asking you questions about refund fraud or complex deals that are occurring via malware and emulators, then chances are your target market are too. So I wouldn't just ask the people who are reviewing the fraud and all that. I would ask the people who are speaking with your customers on a regular basis, what pain points are coming up, what themes are coming up, what questions are being asked. Maybe it's a question like, hey, are any other companies like me seeing this? That is an opportunity for your account management team to go out and speak with another other customers to ask and put them in touch with each other and add added value. It's also an opportunity to say, hey, marketing, this seems to be an issue in this vertical. And it is something that we can help with. So here, I think that we should write an article about it. Otherwise, you just get 5,700 articles about account takeover that say the same thing. I mean, not that I've seen that, but I think several people just left. And sorry, just a note on that. I'm not saying not to write about account takeover at all. Just write something new that doesn't exist already. That's really what I'm saying because it is a problem, but it's changing. It is very different than it was even two, three years ago. The way it looks, the way it performs, the way the actions they're trying to take using account takeover. Focus on that rather than the same talking points as three, four years ago. When it comes to surveys and studies, stop writing your own questions. This is a huge pet peeve of mine, partially because I have worked on several surveys, varying from I got zero say on what those questions were to I got to write the entire survey. And I have really noticed, and I think I mentioned it before too, that the only people that are really creating content in our space are the ones who have services to sell. 
I'm kind of in that space, except for my content doesn't really always align with everything I do in my consultancy. I don't know what that makes me as a business person, but I really enjoy talking to this audience. And, and that's really, and I'm also very lucky that I do have great clients and all of that. So I'm not feeling like I have to continually advertise my service. So I know, and I can't scale further than what I alone can do right now. So I'm in a different position than a lot of companies that have a lot of employees. But my whole point of this is oftentimes I'm seeing survey results that don't make any sense to the target market that you did it for. There's one in particular that came out fairly recently in the last few months and I it was based on the title and a couple of the points in the executive summary I was looking forward to covering it for the podcast and then when I started diving in I did not understand anything they were saying they were using terms I'd never heard of before they were I mean it was just bonkers and I sent a couple of them to two friends that are high up in the leadership for very large fortune 100 companies on the front side and said am I like am I not understanding this and they didn't understand what the point was either another thing look at your sample set Look at the way that you are measuring company size. Also look at the diversity of the companies that are answering your questions. Are they 80% your clients? Because if so, that's not necessarily a representation of the whole market. That's a representation of what your clients' benchmarks are. So something to consider as well. But I do think that this industry needs several new surveys and studies. This is something that I have on my goal list for 2023 is to at least revive one of the surveys I did that people still ask me about that hasn't come out in several years. But it really was just a compilation of every question I've been asked by merchants over the last few years. And those are what they really need to know, right? What are their KPIs? You know, how do they stack up against their peers? What are they paying their team members? Those types of things are not things that are being covered on surveys that are provided strictly from a solution provider perspective. Oftentimes, solution providers are coming up with questions that they want to know from their customers and then repackaging it and putting it into marketing. So if you're going to go down that road, those are expensive. Make sure you, if you're working with a partner that you're working with a partner that understands this industry pretty well and understands your target market really well, understands what they're willing to answer and also what they'll really want to get back and how they'll use that. Will they use it and just share it with their internally in their company? Will they post it on LinkedIn? Will they use that data and cite it in a report that they're providing their company leadership with your company name on it. That to me should be the goal. But I have to say that at 95, 90, and it's anecdotal, but 90% of all surveys and studies I've seen in the last few years wouldn't meet that bar or that threshold. It wouldn't be any of the questions that their C-suite are asking them on a regular basis that they don't have any comparative data to provide. That is really what's needed right now. Okay, when you provide content that helps your audience do their job better, they will bookmark your site. They will send it to their teams. Sometimes they'll use data to communicate with leadership. So that is primarily for surveys, but that's also for other blog posts and other things too. That's really, you know, what I think the goal should often be is knowing, oh, okay, I can trust them for really good educational content for myself or for my team or to help me communicate something to my leadership for them to understand where we are compared to our peers, whether that's through data or not, whether that it could also be a policy, right? There's been a lot of talk about different policies within fraud organizations lately with merchant groups that I've led, whether that is how they're communicating to customers when they cancel orders or whether that is the policies around abuse and suspected abuse. Those are all things that your prospects want to know and your 
audience probably wants to know. Um, and then lastly, the last suggestion I had on the marketing piece was, you know, if you have an intriguing headline, but the article is just an infomercial, you'll lose credibility for wasting that. How will you know if it's wasting their time or not? Again, you have internal resources. Talk to the people who really understand the stuff and who are really great at account management or your sales engineers or your SME, the people who are talking to your core customers, because if they're asking those questions or they're having those problems or they're doing those things. That's what other people want to know too. All right, salespeople, buckle up. It's going to be a long list of what not to do, but I will provide some of what to do, I promise. And please know that I do very much understand and I respect your guys' job. I couldn't be in sales. In fact, I really don't do a great job at marketing myself and, and selling my own services. So I, I really don't empty the position, but there are a lot of things you're doing that are wasting your time and actually impacting your reputation personally and your company's reputation. And I don't think that's your intention. And that's where these helpful tips are coming from. <laughs> Okay, so this is kind of funny. I actually I just paused recording for a minute or two to get some water. My mouth was dry and I had noticed that my phone had been buzzing a bunch. So I looked at it and I actually had a text message from a sizable merchant that was telling me a horror story about a sales rep that contacted them recently. <laughs> and pulled some stuff that was just, they're like, are you serious? Why are they doing this? And I wrote back and was like, thank you for giving me one more example to add to this long list. So anyway, I, like I said, just a minute ago, guys, this is for your own good. This is like taking medicine, right? Like I'm not coming at you from a place of just bagging on you. It's actually trying to say like what you're doing and you think is working is not at all. It's actually having the opposite effect. And I know I've said this more than once, but I'm going to say it again. This industry is very small and we have long memories. There are things that some solution providers have done, some stunts that they've pulled either at conferences or with sales tactics or going over the head of the person. That is one of the worst things you can do, obviously. You know, who you're talking to, if that conversation stalls out and go to their boss and try to pitch to them or even worse, talk bad about the person that, you know, works for them and say they're not doing their job. So that's why you're needed. Like all of those things, those are surefire ways to make sure that even if that merchant later down the road is in need of your service, they will never reach out to you. I have had a few conversations with merchants recently who are like, well, I will never talk to those guys. And I'm like, why? Well, because this one person this one time pulled some crazy stunt and I don't trust the whole company. Is that entirely fair? No. But you have to understand that people in fraud and especially fraud leaders, again, expected to do more with less. They are bogged down. They often have teams to manage. They have vendors to manage. They have the business to manage. They have so many things on their plate. Fraud is constantly changing. The goalpost is constantly changing with the business. Just, there's a lot going on. And quite honestly, like responding to and answering calls and emails and all of that from solution providers is not necessarily on their job description. It's important for them to do, but it's not like they have a set hour every day where they can just respond to inquiries or respond to cold emails and things like that. So, but here's the thing, because they are so short on time, oftentimes it's just ingrained in those of us who have been in fraud on the front lines to look for risks. We look for patterns, we look for risks. And if we see a risk, we are like, oh, okay, we're not going to go down that path. That 
is true for everything in our life, but I've especially seen it applied to solution providers. You know, they don't have time to talk to every single company, right? So if they hear from a peer or if they have a bad experience with one sales rep, they're just going to mark off that entire company unless they have significant reason to second guess it or to think that there's a reason why things are different now. Usually that comes from a peer or sometimes it comes from me where I'm like, they had totally different sales org two years ago. Like, when was this? Okay, well, I happen to know that they're really trying to be different. So maybe give them one more chance, but let me know if they screw it up so that I can go yell at them or tell them that I'm not going to work with them or not going to, they're going to be put on the list of not being able to advertise on the podcast, like whatever I can do. <laughs> not that I have like that much power, but I mean, I'm only going to work publicly, especially with companies that I know have good reputations with their customers, have good reputations with the industry. That means like your prospects and, and people that don't end up working with you, but who you interact with, as well as have a good product and a solid product. Sardine is now sponsoring Fraudology. And one of the reasons I've been so impressed by Sardine is their founder, Soups Ranjan. You'll hear my full conversation with him in the next few weeks, and you'll get to hear about some of his experiences and his passion for fraud fighting for yourself. But the TLDR, or the high-level summary, is that he started out as a fraud fighter with an engineering and data science background, and he was tasked with quickly identifying a fraud solution for one of the fastest-growing companies in the relatively new and high-risk crypto industry almost a decade ago. But after learning about the available options for online fraud detection, he became frustrated with the existing tools on the market. And as fellow fraud fighters, I think a lot of us know exactly the kind of tools he was frustrated with. The legacy fraud tools that just return a score or a signal or a yes, no, maybe without your team getting to understand all of the aggregated data or the value attributed to each data point that goes into calculating that score or the vendor who won't give you your company's data for your own models and their own user interface was probably an afterthought. And let's be honest, Soup wasn't the only one who's been frustrated by the status quo in fraud technology. But not all of us are able to rage quit our jobs, recruit a few of the smartest risk engineers we've ever known, and go build a fraud platform that is truly built by the fraud squad for the fraud squad. A platform for KYC, AML, and payment risk all in one product that lets the client company decide how to best use the massive amounts of data that's available to them. And that's pretty much exactly what Soups did a few years ago. And the result of those efforts has become one of the fastest growing solution providers in fraud that I've seen in many years. And that company is Sardine. To learn more about Sardine or to book a personalized demo, you can go to www.sardine.ai or just click the link at the top of the description for today's episode. So those are the three criteria I fit through it. And if you all of a sudden don't have a good reputation with your prospects because you're harassing them or you're social engineering them, which a lot of sales tactics and sales books and, and traditional sales training is social engineering. Wouldn't recommend it to a fraud manager because we are trained to identify that and we see that as a risk. So again, it all comes down to trust. But this is a very challenging industry to sell to because... We can usually see you through motivations very quickly because that's our job, because we've been trained to do it, because it's our job or their job, I'm just saying collectively, but you know, on the practitioner said, it's their job to identify risks and notify their company. 
whether that is a transaction or that is an employee that they think is risky and are able to back it up and be like, hey, I'm seeing a lot more returns here for some or whatever it is, right? Like whatever the risk is within the business or outside the business to the business, they're on high alert. And so whether it's conscious or not, if they are treated in a way, if they feel like their boundaries aren't listened to, if they feel like they're being pushed or trying to be tricked or have a stunt, yep. That it's pretty much like you're dead to me. And they associate the sales rep as a representative of the business. They don't say, oh, well, that was might have just been one rogue sales rep. Nope, because oftentimes, and, and you know, to that point, they often have a point. When I start hearing about the same company over and over again about pushy, crazy sales tactics, oftentimes when I ask a few questions of people that work there, like not saying, hey, why are you doing this? But I'll just say, hey, just curious, has your sales incentive structure changed recently? Hmm. Or has your CRO or your strategy for sales or the pressure that you're feeling from your leadership changed recently? Almost always it's yes. So it's not just like a rogue sales rep here or there. It's oftentimes coming from the top. Maybe not intentionally. Maybe the top isn't saying, hey, call your prospects and trick them and, and say this or that or lie to them and say this. And you'll understand that more when I get to the examples. But but it does often stem from there some way, whether it's through pressure or whether it's through different incentive structures, et cetera. So, and I recognize that, you know, especially for companies that take venture capital and have investments, you have investors to answer to. I get that. And it can sometimes cause, you know, desperation and pressure, but nine times out of 10, desperation and pressure from a sales person is not going to earn you a contract. It just isn't, at least on the enterprise side. Sometimes mid-market, you can get lucky, so to speak, or have a different result. But that is a whole other conversation and a different strategy and different factors to consider. Okay, I'm going to try to get through these. So the first one is, and I mean, you can take or leave any of these, but these are my advice coming from either direct comments from merchants that oftentimes I've heard more than once or observations I'm like patterns I'm noticing. So I recommend that you stop sending general cold emails in bulk from the sales rep. These are different than marketing emails, right? Like marketing emails are like about blogs or upcoming events or some kind of study that came out or whatever. This is dear so-and-so, you know, we need to get on the books or whatever. Yeah, it's cheap and fast, but you kind of get what you pay for in that regard. Again, I'd be very curious to know how often does that first initial contact actually turn into a good sale and a good contract? Or is it just noise so that you can show your leadership and your investors that you're making attempts? That noise may be leading to people blocking your domain or being like, oh my gosh, they can't take a hint. Or it's just you're inconveniencing them and you're filling up their inbox that is already so insanely full because you are not the only sales rep today or even this hour that is reaching out to the same people. Take a few minutes to read through each email you send. So assuming that you are sending customized emails or maybe you're copying and pasting, but you, I recommend adding at least one personalized sentence. Make sure their name is spelled correctly and that there aren't typos and not grammar issues. Make it to the point, you know, what you provide, etc. Anyone who's been a practitioner in fraud fighting pays attention to the most minute details. Oh, there's a comma where there should be a period. Hmm. And there's this and there's that. And there's you know, like within an order, we see that 
we're paying attention to all those for an order risk, well, transfers over into other parts of our lives, especially emails. And I have seen some horrific and actually quite embarrassing typos over the years. And it's especially bad when they can tell you're using some of those like auto cold emails because it'll say dear name or something like that or insert here. And it's, oh my gosh, I got one the other day that said I had downloaded a report and it was from supposedly a sales rep, but I could see underneath it was like to unsubscribe here. And that usually is not coming from someone who personally personally typed it out to you one-on-one, but it said something about the growing fraud needs at consultant. And I was like, A, that's not the name of my business. And B, I don't have growing fraud needs because I help other companies. Like, just do a quick, who are you sending this to? Does it make sense? Is their name spelled right? Just, I mean, put a tiny bit of thought into it because you're going to get what you give, right? So you put a tiny bit of effort into it. You can't be upset when they don't reply. That's my advice. Take it or leave it. Don't use the auto emails when they don't respond. You can create a sequence of emails. If somebody hasn't opened or responded to an email in a certain amount of time, you know, three days, four days, whatever, you can send another one, another one, you can have different copy, especially when that copy gets extra sassy. It can read as rude, especially if they don't know you. So just, oh, you must be busy or, oh, I guess I can take the hint or, oh my gosh, I get those too. It's obnoxious. It's like, no, you can't take a hint because yes, still have my email in your auto email sequence. And is a very good way, again, to have people unsubscribe, to have people block your domain from their company email. It is happening more and more. So knock it off. That's what I have to say about that. I mean, I know of one sales rep that wrote so many, sent so many emails. The numbers were insane. And and they weren't through an auto, auto program, but it was just copy base, copy base, copy base. And or similar to the term used about resumes a couple weeks ago on previous episode, the or actually I think it was just last Thursday, the, you know, spray and pray method as far as like when it comes to emails. Yeah, again, you're going to get what you give. But this person actually ended up getting like their company domain marked on all these domain like spammy site, like as if it was a spam site. And it was a reputable provide, service provider in the space, like whether it was payments or fraud or cybersecurity, it was like arranged similar within this space. And they also then they went to LinkedIn and started reaching out to contacts there. And so many people marked it as spam that they then got put in LinkedIn jail. So there can be side effects. Also, I really don't know how many like enterprise level again, sometimes Ben market will reply, but not often. So that is one for sure. Understand that fraud fighters are beyond busy, especially now. And you are not the only company continually emailing and reaching out via phone or LinkedIn. I know I mentioned it a minute ago, but I just, I cannot, it bears repeating. Be clear in every contact that you make, whether it's email or phone, et cetera, where, where your company fits in a risk stack or in a customer journey. What problem do you solve? Not just we reduce chargebacks and we improve approval rates. Well, that's what everybody says. It's too general. What makes you different? Do a little bit of research, but don't make assumptions. You know, you can do a little bit of research about their company or whatever, but don't be like, oh, I see that you guys are having a big sale. And so you're probably having this problem. Eh, Don't insult them. So that's another one. Don't disparage their current provider and your competitor. Oh my goodness. So this is one of many examples I can provide, but Honestly, I've talked to solution providers before who have said that they're creating campaigns like this, and I didn't discourage them to do it. But recently, there was a conversation in one of my merchant groups about this topic, and this was something I was enlightened on. Like, I think I'm pretty well-versed on what they like and don't like, but they really don't like. So 
sometimes when a, especially a core fraud provider wins business from one of their competitors and the metrics and the KPIs are better than the merchant had at the other provider, sometimes that provider will send out an email campaign to companies who also use that competitor that their new client left and say, you know, we recently had a customer of the company that you're using switch to us. And because of that, they're now, they've reduced their chargebacks by X and they've increased their approvals by Y and they've had sunshine and rainbows all day. I don't know, whatever the outcome is. And I didn't necessarily think that was great, but I didn't, it wasn't on my list in, uh, of things I'd heard anyone really complain about and be like, this is so dumb. And I do know of a few cases where it has worked from the solution providers anyways, where it's at least gotten them, you know, an initial call. And I can argue why it might make sense, right? Because oftentimes fraud leaders are head down and they don't have the time every year or even every other year or every third year to go out and look at the market and learn, really do like a, not an RFP, but just understanding where all the fraud providers are and if they've added new technology and if they've gotten better or worse, et cetera. So I could see that working for some people. But especially when you're reaching out to fraud veterans who are leaders in the space, that's really who I've heard this from the most. They see it as an insult, like you're insulting them for selecting the company that they're using. I hadn't thought of it before, but they had some very passionate words to say about it. So I believe them and, and it makes sense, right? They kind of see it as gaming the system. Also, it can feel invasive when competitors know who you're or just other companies know who you're using for fraud. Now, granted, there are some people that speak at conferences with them, et cetera. But I also am very aware of the lead lists that can be purchased for not that much of lists of enterprise merchants that use XYZ vendor. I'm also aware of the plugins on Chrome and other browsers that can actually show where those transactions are routed to. So you make a purchase on the website, you see where the transaction's routed to, and now you know who their provider is. Or if you're looking in the T's and C's. So I know there are other ways to do it rather than just buying the list, but it seems kind of invasive and apparently insulting. So that's that was something I learned that I didn't realize was a thing. And, and again, not with everyone, but something to consider. Do a little research. Don't make assumptions. So here's the story that I just read in my text messages while I was getting some water. I was having a conversation with a merchant and because they were asking me for suggestions for other providers. This is not a new thing for anyone right now. Like I mentioned, there are a lot of existing providers that people, like companies that merchants have been working with for years and who are very loyal to, who in the last six months to a year, and one or two of them, it's been longer, have not been treating their customers well. They have been really prioritizing getting new business, and some of them are even bullying their customers. And so, I mean, what I think is bullying, gaslighting as well, which there's a small handful of companies that when they are complained to, oftentimes they will just flip it around on the customer. And at least a few years ago, there was one that was doing it quite often whenever companies complained to them. And unfortunately, they hadn't improved their product for a while. And so it was happening quite a bit. You know, they would reach out to me and go, I know that they said I'm the only one, but can I just, do you know anyone else that's having this problem? They weren't thinking it was related to the product. Just, hey, we're having this problem and I don't know what we're doing on our end, but our provider says it's our fault. Can I talk to someone? Do you know somebody else that, you know, is dealing with this that I can talk to? And after like the third, fourth, fifth, eighth conversation like that, I started to be like, hey, just so you know, you're not the only one. 
that is using this provider that is having this problem. They are telling everyone else that they're the only one, but you're not. So like I said, truth gets out. But all of that to say, this merchant I've been writing back and forth, and I said, what about XYZ vendor? And they said, well, they're like dead to me. Like, I don't ever want to talk to them because of what they did. And I was like, refresh my memory. And it was a couple of years ago. But again, merchants attach sales rep behavior with the business. They see it as a threat. They move on. And I've actually heard of a couple of companies doing this. So I don't think I'm narrowing it down to one. I think I will not be surprised if more than one solution provider reaches out and says, oh, is that one of ours? Because I've heard of this tactic a few times in different ways. So basically, the head of the fraud department gets a phone call and they're told it's from a customer and the customer... And the person says, I just had an order canceled on your website and I don't know why it was after my bank said that they approved it. So they said to talk to you. And that obviously sounds like a fraud cancellation. So the leader of fraud says, oh, well, you know what? Customer service is actually way more equipped to handle that. So I'm going to transfer you to them. Oh, no, no, no. Wait, actually, I'm calling from XYZ vendor and I know that we can approve more orders and that your vendor is canceling more. Okay, so first of all, did they even place an order on the website? Did they even get it canceled? Are they lying? Are they telling the truth? Second of all, as this merchant could have ranted a little bit, they were like, you just told me I'm not doing a good job and that I canceled an order that I wasn't supposed to. And now you want me to listen to you and trust you? Again, I mean, they see it as insulting in some ways, right? Like just, you know, hey, this company that you're using is bad. Well, does that mean that the person that signed the contract is bad at their job? Um, Is that what you're implying? You know, you just told me that either my team or my system canceled an order that you won't even give me the order number because there probably isn't one. So that's a huge issue. I mean, it is social engineering at its finest and fraud departments and cybersecurity departments are trained to recognize and be on alert with social engineering tactics. So I do feel bad for people that come from sales from other industries and come to fraud because a lot of the tactics that worked there will not work in this industry. We pay too much attention to details. We talk to each other. We're a small industry. We remember things for a long time. It's not easy. Like I said, it's not easy to be a salesperson. I'm not saying it is. But these are things that if you're doing them, it is only hurting you and your company. The other thing, you know, if you call prospects, do not call them more than once a week. Maximum, maybe two if like you just went to voicemail and it didn't ring before. And do not call them week after week. There's another merchant. And yes, a lot. I text with a lot of them. It's just easier and faster because my inbox is on LinkedIn and Google are so full. And I, yeah, that's, I'm disorganized there. And so I'm like, yeah, here, here's my text. Just text me. And a few weeks ago, one merchant sent me a screenshot of call log and they had put in the company that this person worked for and a nickname for the salesperson and showed me the call log. And within 45 minutes, the sales rep called them six times. Left six voicemails. They almost all sounded the same. They forwarded a couple of them to me and they weren't even engaging. It wasn't like, hey, we met you at a or however, you know, you got their phone number or whatever. And then say, we I'd just really love to talk to you, see if we could help you about X. It was like an entire pitch for a minute and a half. We provide da 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 and we're best in class and blah, blah, blah. Really? Who's going to respond to that? Especially after six times. They were like, based on my call history, this person from this vendor called me more than my three children combined. And they weren't kidding. It was absolutely insane. And I know that they, that is not an isolated case. I recognize that that merchant works for a very large company that that solution provider would absolutely love to work with. That is not the way to do a first impression. I mean, 
Honestly, in a lot of ways, sales contacts are a lot like dating. I mean, there's, we could really play out this analogy all the way to, you know, when trips and dinners and all kinds of stuff are paid for down the line. But just in this part, right? If you have a child and somebody who, you know, wanted to take them on a date, called them six times in 45 minutes, would you feel okay with your child dating that person? So why would this merchant be like, oh, I really want to learn about their product. He just, they just plugged up my voicemail and clogged it full. It's also another good way to get your company phone numbers blocked. Like just, I really do understand that people in sales, especially right now, especially with uncertainty, with investor financing, with businesses slowing down on expenses and all of that, I get that the pressure is higher, guys. I'm not trying to say that it's easy or anything else. But actually, if you're a little bit more intentional and you have a strategy and you actually focus on providing value and building relationships, I have to say, I mean, the, especially the two companies I've been working with the longest are doing really well right now. In fact, one of them and almost two of them have a one-year wait and a backlog to humongous companies because their product is solid. It solves a problem in a very unique way that aligns with business needs and their sales rep have been very respectful of boundaries. They have asserted themselves here and there, but they've also been great communicators and good at building relationships and not just talking about business. And their marketing has been really on point. And it's not just because I'm working with them. They're also just very smart people who understand this industry and wanted to be different. And they came to me saying, hey, we don't want to do things the same way as everyone else, but we also have goals to reach. So I'm not just picking on you and there's no other way. There is a way. You just have to be a little more intentional and you need to be more strategic and understand your market more and really focus more on what you can provide for them. I mean, was it John F. Kennedy? I mean, I know this is very like U.S. There's I want to say it was John F. Kennedy. It was a president of some kind who once said in a speech, ask what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. If you're a sales rep, ask not what the merchant can do for you, but what you can do for the merchant. Don't think about, oh, I really want their brand on our website, or I would get a killer commission if their volume goes on to our traffic. Or, you know, all those things that are going through your head that are natural. Don't lead with that. Don't make that be your number one reason for reaching out or for talking to them, because it will show through. We notice the details like nobody's business. And honestly, I'm, I think I'm really good at noticing the details. My poor husband would tell you that, but compared to some of the other merchants I know, I'm oblivious. And they really pay attention to syntax and this and that and whatever. So like put a little strategy in there and don't just go for the companies that you want to bring on and be able to brag to your CEO that you got on or your investors or whatever. Reach out to the companies that you know you can provide good service to. Who are the companies within your current customer organization that you guys are really providing great value to? Well, there are probably other companies with similar business models that you could also provide good value to. Lean into the value. Lean into the value proposition. Lean into, you know, how you can help merchants do their jobs better and save time and money and, and not just the incremental savings either now, right? It's no longer about, oh, we can shave 3% off or several basis points here there. It needs to be significant. You know, merchants and, and practitioners, whether they're fintech, marketplace, et cetera, 
they all are not able to just implement stuff because of this or that, especially because fraud is often seen as a cost center. It needs to be solving a problem. It needs to go over the top. So it's very, very critical that all of you also invest in your products. I mean, some savvy merchants are very smart and they will go look at a company on LinkedIn and see what the breakdown is of their titles and of the departments. And if they have more than 50% of their organization is focused on sales or marketing and you know, under 50% or under 30% are on product or development, they're going to be extra skeptical because they're going to say, well, are you going to innovate the product? Because fraud changes a lot. And I can't change fraud providers in three years. I can't change them every two to three years. So I need to know that you're investing in innovation and that you're changing and that you're listening to your customers and that you're growing and expanding and that you are investing in the product. You're not just building the product, setting it on a shelf and then reselling it a ton of times. That's super important. Oh, I already said that. Okay. It is important for sales people to understand their their stuff, right? Understand as much as you can about fraud, where your company fits in the market, what types of problems you can solve. How do you compare to your most direct competitors? I know that some marketing departments will provide that, but make sure that you can ask your customers too, right? If you have good relationships with them or ask account managers to speak with them. Hey, I know that you used to work with this company and I, you came to us. Why was that? And what have you seen? Because I'm about to talk to a company that's working with them. And I'd just be curious where you provided X, Y, Z, but just, oh, well, how are your decline rates? You know, how are your approval rates? What are they at? Oh, well, we actually have an average of blah, whatever that is. Having a meaningful conversation rather than just getting the sale, getting the sale. And your intentions matter so much in this industry because again, we are paid to look at an order, just a series of, especially for those of us leaders, our veterans who started out in fraud analysis, which I think a lot of us did, like manual review and that thing, that stuff, that type of thing, I think is what I was going to say. We were trained to look at just a few data points about an order and be able to know the intention of the person on the other side of the computer, especially if we started 15, 20 years ago. We didn't have very much, but we were able to really look at it quickly and go, oh, yeah, you're bad news. Oh, you're good. And it'd just be the teeniest, tiniest differences, but we'd be able to tell them. And So if we can do that, we can definitely see through your intentions when you're speaking with us or sending an email. More to consider. All right, here is another tip. Don't offer gift cards or other gifts just for a first call. It might come across as being desperate, right? Like they might think, well, the only way you can get people to meet with you is if you pay them. That must mean you don't have a good product. And it probably just won't lead to anything for you either. Because a lot of times the people who I know who take up on that or who will, oh, sure, yeah, I'll take a gift card to wherever or whatever the incentive is for a 15-minute demo, they're usually not the person you need to talk to or they're not in the market or whatever, right? It's not it's not going to work out for you. So it's just wasted time. I just decided I'm going to finish up my suggestions for after and since solution providers have been in contact with each other and for the demo call part, I'm going to actually record that for this Thursday's episode. And merchants, I've got more for you guys on that one too. So I hope that you look forward to that. Make sure you subscribe to Fraudology so you are alerted when that new episode is out and that it's not just You're not just waiting for me to post it on LinkedIn because I sometimes forget that. I'm not proud, but there's just a lot in my head and on my to-do list. But before I close this out, this is a post that from a leader for one of the Fang companies. I think I could say, I know there's a couple different acronyms, but 
and I realize that's just four, but one of those four companies posted on LinkedIn about a year ago, and I saved this specifically for this episode, actually. And so I thought that I would close this out with their post. It was actually an article, so it's got several bullet points, but you will hear some of these things that are very similar to what I already shared. But I think it's good for you guys to hear this in a buyer's voice and in a buyer's perspective. And, you know, know that this is from one person I tried to, in my suggestions, tried to kind of normalize it, right? So what are the themes I hear regularly? Sometimes there's like a edge case, but oftentimes even those stories that I provided are ones that I have heard, you know, many times, right? So it's not just like one-offs. This is one person's opinion. So I would say that it's specific to them. However, you can assume especially based on how many, oh my goodness, how many likes and comments and all that that they got, and they don't post a ton on LinkedIn, that this was very popular. So a lot of people related to it. Okay, so they said, I sometimes post on LinkedIn about my disdain for various sales tactics, and I've gotten a number of questions on general thoughts and advice for sales folks selling to fraud and security leaders. I'm no sales expert but I'm happy to provide some perspectives as a longtime buyer in this space in no particular order. If I ask not to be contacted by your company, ensure that fulfilling my request covers all channels, phone, LinkedIn, email, snail mail, etc., and extends to your colleagues. I think a lot of people would say that too. I know that that is probably makes few people fearful, but that is usually the expectation when they ask not to be contacted again is on all channels. So if that expectation isn't met, it can be very annoying and frustrating. Another one, don't sell based on FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Security and fraud prevention are tough fields to work in and bad things happen. I don't need scare tactics from sales folks. It's fine to follow up to an unanswered message once and give it at least a week between messages. If someone doesn't respond after the second reach out, it's likely that they're not interested. I would not have any time to do my job if I replied or unsubscribed to every outreach I receive. I know that's true for a lot of people <laughs> on the buyer side in enterprise fraud as well. Don't assume you understand the problems I'm facing or that what should be at the top of my priority list. Every organization has a different threat model, culture, and risk tolerance. That I think is absolutely correct. That's what I meant by don't make assumptions earlier too. Like don't assume that you know what their pain points are based on who their provider is or the type of business they are or what their business goals are because they can really vary. There can be two companies that are direct competitors with each other and they have completely different priorities, both in fraud as well as in the business. I have more tips on Thursday about when you're having conversations with the merchants, but the first one I had was don't start a call asking for their pain points, you need to earn their trust first. So I know that that would be the next question you might ask is, okay, so if I can't assume, I'll just ask them what their pain points are when we first get on the phone. Oh my gosh, I've been on some of those calls with like clients when I've, you know, brought a merchant client to meet a solution provider. We'll have a call and I'll be on it. And I'm just like face palming. That's how you're starting the conversation. Like I know that that is in a sales training book somewhere, but Merchants are not, especially if they're a big brand, they're not just going to come out and tell you what their biggest problems are until they know what problems you solve. If you could kind of solve their problem, then they might ask some specific questions and you can kind of understand their pain points. But they're not going to feel comfortable telling them to you, especially if you don't have an NDA in place. But even if you do, like you need to build trust. So instead, you can say similar companies have this problem. I don't know if you do or something like that. Okay, there's a few more. If you're selling something, don't ask to pick my brain or ask for feedback on your approach or your tool. 
I have a personal peeve with people asking to pick my brain and I'm using quotation marks, but you can't see them. He used to be like, are you a zombie? And then I saw a shirt, I don't know, some consultant posted in some group a few years ago that said, if you want to pick my brain, you need to pick your payment method. I'm not that rude. And obviously with merchants, I have a very different policy, but when it's a, for a big project, you know, or a specific project or specific RFI for merchants, then yeah, it needs to be an engagement. But especially for solution providers, I mean, I get a lot of messages from new startups that want to get my perspective. And I've had to say, look, I'm so busy. I, I'm going to have to charge for that. I love to learn about new technology, but like I also know myself and I love to say, oh, would it work for this business model or this use case or this use case? And I just don't have the time I need to prioritize in some way. So I do need to charge for that time. And oftentimes I don't get a response back, but that's true for merchants too. So it like this person's post, it, it's a form of social engineering. Like it's a, it's a form of lying and not being truthful. Hey, I just want to ask for your opinion on something. And then I'm going to shove my business model down your throat once we get on a call. Do not call me on the phone, all caps. There is no situation where I'm looking to have this conversation, email or LinkedIn is fine. That poor merchant that got six calls in 45 minutes. And that was not just a one day thing, by the way. This was several days like in a row for weeks. I just haven't talked or heard from the merchant in a few weeks, but I'm sure it's still continuing or that they've blocked that person by now. If you're working with someone on my team, oh yeah, this is this is coming up on Thursdays too. If you're working with someone on my team, don't escalate to me if things don't go your way. I trust my team to make good decisions. Like I said, this is a very senior leader of fraud and security for a very large company. So I take it for what it's worth. Your solution or product doesn't solve every security problem. That's okay. And that goes for fraud as well. That's okay. I don't expect it to. Just be clear about the value you believe that your solution brings. Your solution can't save me from the next insert breach, fraud attack, exploit, vulnerability. So insert it here. Don't say it well. Perhaps it's additive or helpful, but operating a security program successfully is complex, as is a fraud program, and involves people and technology working together. Again, just be clear about your product's value. Don't offer me a gift card, gift, or cash in exchange for a meeting. Just no. <laughs> There's two more. Keep your word and follow up on time if and when asked. I appreciate folks who meet their commitments and respect my time. And then this one is so true and will be talked about more later. If I'm a customer, think long-term partnership versus transactional sale. There is a lot of overhead to switching vendors, and I appreciate folks that I can build a long-term, mutually beneficial relationship with. That is so true for cybersecurity products, for fraud products, et cetera. It is a huge lift to implement something new. And I think in some ways that's taken for granted by some providers with their current customers. But for new customers, really, I would actually add to that for the entire sales cycle. Focus on building a long-term relationship, not just a transactional sale. That is also how you build loyalty with your merchant customers. And when you have loyalty, they'll sometimes let, you know, something little slide, but they'll also be the ones who are advocating for you most. They'll be the best salespeople for you. They'll be your best help sales helper, or they'll be your, the opposite of that, depending on how you navigate these different pieces of the sales process. So with that, like I said, I'm just, I wasn't going to, but I've decided I'm going to continue this on Thursday's episode. So this will be part one and Thursday will be part two. And part two will be focused more on, you know, once you receive contact and add a demo call with the merchant and then afterwards, and then I will have more tips for merchants as well. 
I hope this is helpful. It always takes me a little bit of time to kind of compile these, but I really am doing it for the betterment of the industry and not necessarily to scold anyone specifically. But I mean, truth be told, some of the companies that pull some of these stunts, I won't work with one-on-one. So this is your way to hear these things. And like I said, I'm kind of channeling all of the merchants who had talked about these things over the last several years when I'm giving this advice. So it's coming through my voice, but the true source is most likely a lot of companies that you have prospected and interacted with over the years. All right, with that, I will look forward to speaking with you on Thursday's episode. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.